BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Gracio fils de pont. Gracio fils de pont. Yeah. Gracio fils de I don't know why you sent a text him when you said <laughs> I'm trying my best. I, I don't speak French, but I, you know what it is? I, I love the French. Yeah. I love French uh, culture. I, I love all that stuff. I love even putting up with my husband speaking ill of the French. <laughs> I don't speak ill of the French. The French speak ill of me. That's not true. <laughs> That's all paranoia from the CIA. <laughs> 16, 16 years in the city has taught me that the French will go towards it. They'll come at me. They're coming at me. I'm saying don't come at me with that. And they're coming at me every time. <laughs> so many times the French are coming at me. I'm just fucking hanging out. They're coming at all me. All right. All right. Marcus okay. Parks, me. Okay. The Statue of Liberty was not looking at you. All right. <laughs> well, you, you have not. You have yet to go to France, although although you will. I will. You will I will. You, We're planning on it. We're yes, planning on go it. to France sometime. So that way you can actually see for yourself that they are so nice and kind and caring and make sure that you're wearing a shirt and shoes when you go into a restaurant. <laughs> they really, I, I love, I love the accent or not. It's not an accent, right? It's a whole language. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, no, you can say, yeah, I love the French accent. Le bon yeah. You know, yeah. I'm just speaking gibberish. Le bon la de fromage. You just said cheese. <laughs> anyway, we're, we're going to get into some Francophile people. I don't know if that is a just liking French culture or that is some sort of. No, I feel like that's a political movement. Sorry. <laughs> what do you call no, someone who likes French culture? Not Fra no, Franco it's Frank it is Francophile. Like you call oh. it Anglophile, someone who's really into British culture. Okay. I don't know what you call it, Americophile. Or I guess someone who's into American culture, you call the rest of the fucking world. Oh, my God. <laughs> Welcome to No Dogs in Space, everybody. I'm Marcus Parks. Yo soy Carolina Hidalgo. <laughs> And let's just say the whole there's more there's a lot more to the world. Absolutely, of course we know that. I'm just Josh and <laughs> I know. I can't wait. I'm so excited. And by the way, everyone who's listening, thank you so much for your patience and and waiting for this great uh, new series that we got going on. I'm very excited about it and I hope you guys have been enjoying the extra plays while we've been uh preparing. Yeah, for we've all been, this. We've been having a great time doing the extra plays. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. And thank you so much for being loyal No Dogs in Space fans. We appreciate each and every one of you. Yes.
All right, let's start up the new series. Now, one of the most difficult delineations that we've had to make when doing this season is where the line exists between punk and alternative, where the genres intersect, where they diverge, and where they run parallel. But like the love of music itself, the more we explore alternative music, the more that I see that these sorts of distinctions are ultimately subjective, which is how I think today's artist likes it to be. This is an artist, and I do mean a fucking artist, who is hard to pin down partly because she never allowed herself to settle into any single lane. Throughout her career, she morphed and evolved into not only whatever she wanted to be, but whatever she had to be in order to survive. And she did it all using her homegrown South Jersey toughness as an engine. That's right. Even the best New Yorkers come from New Jersey. Some of them do. A lot of them. <laughs> and friends, by the way. See, despite the fact that she's best known as a pioneering singer and songwriter, she never set out to become a rock and roll singer. Instead, she always thought of herself as, first and foremost, a writer who just happens to sometimes perform. To that point, her first album, Horses, now rightfully seen as a revolutionary record in every respect, it was done almost as a lark something she could perform and record and leave behind if she so chose. And after three more albums, that's exactly what she did. The questions here, though, are why and how. And who? <laughs> and when? <laughs> We're going to find out. <laughs> Speaking of when, for one, her formative years as an artist were between revolutions, after the hippies but before punk, when it seemed as if rock and roll was already sliding into something unrecognizable just a couple of short decades after its inception. But like other great people in history, she actually did something about it. As she explicitly said herself, her mission was to infuse youth culture with new people and new ideas because their generation's cultural voice was in jeopardy. Of course, that was owing to the boring corporate takeover of rock and roll. In other words, she provided an alternative. Ooh. But while she certainly had a mission, the music she produced was a pure product of who this person was, whether she was a poet, an artist, a mother, a factory worker, a hitmaker, or a rock and roll star. Every single one of those things was in her bailiwick. In other words, her expression was a lifestyle, and her lifestyle was expression. That's right. You have to live it. You have to embody all of it if you want to get close to this. Yeah. Just by simply being herself to an insufferable yet revolutionary degree she showed the what no no you're right but, <laughs> but come on but come on in the intro i mean i mean everyone has their their things everyone and, and we're things. gonna get into it of course and uh, you know and of course we should not be throwing stones we should not be in no. this glass studio <laughs> we absolutely should not but you know here in no dogs in space it's a warts and all portrait every single time that's right but she showed the people who absorbed her albums and performances, and that includes us, that if you don't fit into the world that you're given, then it's your job, nay, your fucking destiny, to find the place that fuels and accepts your expression. For her part, her music is honest and passionate, androgynous, dripping with a self-evident sexual freedom delivered by a voice that's hypnotic and powerful, timeless and fearless. This artist always knew exactly who she was. And because of that, she was ridiculed and sometimes hated by others in the New York scene who didn't or couldn't vibe with what she had to offer. Cynics who long ago stopped believing in love, UFOs, and the power of being truly free. That's right. But to be such a person takes an enormous amount of courage. Courage, however, is always paired with occasional failure. And this artist certainly fell flat on her face in ways small and gigantic, 
metaphorical and physical. But either way, she is truly a person without shame. And while that's usually seen as a negative quality, it's what made a true revolutionary out of Patti Smith. was awesome yeah the yeah. whole thing is awesome yeah. the ding dong part is our favorite part ding dong ding dongs it's our favorite part in every weird song and, and i love the sucking on my ding dong with lou reed i mean it's just someone should just have a song called ding dong actually we should write a book called ding dong that's our first book is great ding dongs throughout rock history three chapters only that's all you need we'll give you we'll just send you a pdf <laughs> <laughs> All right. Sources, right? Sources. Yes, because we're talking about Patti Smith, as you've gathered by now. <laughs> um, so we started, of course, with uh, Just Kids, a memoir by Patti Smith that highlights her early years as well as her time with Robert Maplethorpe and the start of both their careers. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about that, of course, very soon. And then we read Dancing Barefoot, The Patti Smith Story by Dave Thompson. Fantastic read. Yep. And Patti Smith on Patti Smith, Interviews and Encounters, edited by Aiden Levy. And Maplethorpe, look at the pictures documentary by Fenton Bailey and Randy Barbato on HBO Max. Thank God that there was just like a movie. I know. You know, <laughs> finally. So many, so many books. <laughs> and what are these days? Like, I hope to have a collection called Parks on Parks. Yeah. Yeah. Or yeah. Hidalgo on Hidalgo. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and it's all Georgie just talking about us. Yeah. All our secrets finally laid bare yes. by the girl who was there. Right. Georgie's a dog, by the way. <laughs> just want you guys to know in yeah, case you didn't dog. know. It's the dog and no dogs in space. She's not allowed. And now, without further ado, let's get in to the story of Patty Smith. That's right. So Patty Smith, Patricia Lee Smith, was born in Chicago, Illinois on December 30th, 1946. She was the oldest of four kids. Her mom, Beverly, was a waitress at a drugstore and her dad, Grant, was a machinist at a factory. So for most of her childhood, Patty grew up in a very rural town in New Jersey. Oh, yeah. Like very like Woodbury, South Jersey. That That's like there's pig farms and peach orchards and, and fields for miles and miles. Yes, it is very rural. It is very blue collar. That is Patty Smith's upbringing. Yes, and in a, in a very solitary place. But she had her books. 
So you see, Patty learned how to read at a very young age and she fell in love with it. And that's because her parents were... <laughs> what? So you're, just, you're talking about Patty Smith like she's your niece that you're really proud of. I know. She could learn how to read before she went to school. It was cool because her mom taught her because her mom was a big fan of reading. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I guess that's not weird. <laughs> yes. And, and by the time Patty Smith was a teenager, she had decided she wanted to be an artist. Yeah. That was it. Like she'd been to the Philadelphia Museum of Fine Art. She saw Picasso, Modigliani, the paintings. No. Oh, Kate the dudes the were like, oh, Modigliani wasn't there. They weren't there. <laughs> no, but, but she did see the paintings and the models in these works of art were like tall, slender, gangly, even <laughs> a little <laughs> heroin cheek looking <laughs> and to which Patty Smith was like, that speaks to me. Well, it looks like her. Yes. It, that's the thing about uh, Patty Smith. Like she was like, by the time she was 13 or 14, she was like five, eight and barely a hundred pounds. And her looks, I mean, she's a very attractive woman. Yeah. She very much is, especially when she was younger. Yeah. That's for sure. But she's also, she's very striking. She's very tall, very slender. So she stands out. Which is always strange to me because anytime you look at pictures of her, for some reason, maybe it's just because Lenny K is super tall, but I always picture her as like five foot two. <laughs> no, no, she's tall. Yeah. She's striking, as I said. She, I mean, like she stands out like sometimes for better and sometimes for worse. And hell, I even met her once. Oh, oh, I know why. Because I was working at a bookstore in the West Village called Unoppressive Non-Imperialistic Bargain Books. And she came in and the cashier station was raised. So I was like way higher than she was. So she, I imagine her as five foot two. She was super nice. I heard she's really nice. I heard uh, she has a resting bitch face, but she's like really, really nice. She was super nice to me. Yes. No, right. Well, we're going to find out because <laughs> the reviews are mixed. Not these. everyone's going to have that opinion. No, no, but. Okay, let's continue on. Let's continue on. You see, Patty, she, as I said, she came from this small rural town, you know, full of chickens and pigs and and people. They Mm -hmm. were there too, regular people. Because Patty, she felt different, not just like outwardly, uh, just because, you know, she was super tall and and, and gangly looking, even though someone like Marcus Sparks wouldn't even notice any of that. (laughs) But the fact that like back in her time, then this is like what, like the early 60s, late 50s, like back in Patty's time and place, a lot of women would grow up to be like a wife or a mother or a hairdresser. Although, you know, that's all respectable. That wasn't for Patty. You, see, yeah. you know, Patty was always about ever since she was a kid about like, I need to be an artist and I need to live the artist lifestyle. And that that's what drew her to all of this. Everything we're about to talk about is about her trying to or, or actually achieving yeah. and just putting forward her living the artist lifestyle. I mean, this is a woman who walks the walk at every point in her life. Now, by high school, Patty's music tastes were drawn towards the contemporary jazz artists of the day. And luckily for her, this was the early 60s when some of the most important jazz artists in history were touring and playing shows on the regular. And as it just so happened, right after Patty got her own copy of My Favorite Things, she got wind of one of the many John Coltrane shows that were happening on the regular in Philadelphia. My God! I know. On the night that Patti Smith decided to go for it, to actually see Coltrane play live, he was playing a show at a nightclub called Peps. So Patti went to Philly and snuck her way in, despite the fact that she was still in high school. She made it through one song before she was thrown out. But considering how John Coltrane played, she probably made it at least 10 minutes into the show with Coltrane's instrumental take on the standard nature boy. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, why you have to do that that smooth jazz radio voice? <laughs> no, the smooth jazz radio. Yeah, we got John Coltrane here on WFUC. <laughs> okay. We're going to be listening to a lot of classics from Coltrane today. We're going to get into a little bit of Thelonious Monk. And then I am going to speak for six minutes straight about a jazz artist that you have never heard of. And you're going to wait patiently the entire time. Sounds good. Until you finally jazz. tell us what the name of the song is, <laughs> like, so long afterwards. Actually, we have that problem, too. So we're going to do that. We're going to start telling people the name of the song. This was Nature Boy. <laughs> By John Coltrane. Off of the album. I don't know. Look it up yourselves. Anyway, continue. But while Patty certainly had refined tastes in jazz, she couldn't stay away from the straight, uncut rock and roll. In her teenage mind, nobody compared to a certain band that she first saw on the Ed Sullivan Show. One night in 1965, Patty heard her father yell out, Hey, Patty, come look at these guys! <laughs> Seriously, Hey, yeah. come on, look at these guys! They're, they're from Jersey. But when she ran into the room, she saw not the Beatles, like everyone else we've ever talked about on this show, but the Rolling Stones. is on my side. see how a teenage girl might like that <laughs> or boy yeah i can see how anybody might like that you know it's it's very sensual yes it is the rolling stones definitely came out on top by being very sensual mm -hmm. now when patty later wrote about this performance during her brief stint as a rock journalist in cream magazine she said that seeing the stones was alchemical it was a recipe that she couldn't fathom but from reading that article one can certainly surmise the recipe was decidedly sexual in nature. Patti Smith was raunchy in the 70s. Yes. Yeah, why not? <laughs> but while she learned the art of improvisation from jazz and the art of rock and roll as a way to communicate sex from the Stones, Patti's biggest intellectual influence in music was, like so many others who styled themselves as rock and roll poets, Bob Dylan. Darkness at the break of noon Shadows, even the silver spoon The handmade blade, the child's balloon Eclipses both the sun and moon To understand you know too soon There is no sense in trying Pointed threats, they bluff with scorn Suicide remarks are torn From the fool's gold mouthpiece The hollow horn plays wasted words Proves to warn that he not busy being born Is busy dying Temptation's page flies out the door You follow, find yourself at war Watch waterfalls of pity roar You feel the moan, but unlike before You discover that you just be one more person crying So don't fear if you hear 
a foreign sound to your ear. It's all right, Ma. I'm only sighing. Okay, so growing up as a teenager in South Jersey, you know, Patty came from very humble beginnings. Mm-hmm. Remember, her parents are very blue collar, like we said. They they have a house payment and four kids to feed. So Patty naturally worked a summer job every year since she was 14 years old, from picking strawberries to babysitting to factory work. She actually she actually started working the fact I know <laughs> this shit escalated the babysitters real club fast. <laughs> to working a factory non-union <laughs> since she was 16 years old yeah. inspecting handlebars for little kids tricycles in, in a toy factory. <laughs> it was tough. The conditions were horrible. Minimum wage, mind-numbing work. This is not like really you know, you're, uh, there's a lot of machinists, a lot of factory workers who do like amazing extensive stuff. But this is just what? So I picked strawberries for a little while <laughs> and then I babysat and then I worked in a fucking factory <laughs> until I was 19 years old. <laughs> Seriously? Really? <laughs> yes. Okay. So it was a one particularly sweltering hot summer day that Patty took her lunch break from the factory <laughs> and wandered over to a secondhand bookstore. And it was there that a good looking face caught her eye. It was 19th century French poet Arthur Rimbaud's mm. his face on the cover of his book. Mm-hmm. The book Illuminations is a collection of his poems. It's it's fantastic. If, if you're in that kind of thing, it's fantastic. You've been getting into Rimbaud quite a bit lately. Just a little bit. Yeah, because he's famous for Illuminations and also for A Season in Hell. Uh, and also mostly well known for writing his poetry during his teenage years from yeah. like 15 to 21. That's when he wrote all of this poetry. Yeah, he's the sort of guy that you can really compare to a lot of rock and roll artists who put out their absolute best shit when they're in their late teens, early 20s, and you think, like, my God, how can someone at that age write something so universal and so true? Someone like Ian Curtis, for example. Um, fucking, who read Rimbaud. Yeah, who read Rimbaud, exactly. Who owned a season in hell. Yeah. Because you see, his work inspired countless artists, writers, thinkers, from Jack Kerouac to Jim Morrison to Bob Dylan to Patti Smith. Mm -hmm. You see, Rimbaud, he wanted to risk his sanity to create the most beautiful poetry, to eschew societal norms and even hygiene, to live off the land of need be, to become almost a conduit of dreams of the earth of everything and create a new structure for self-expression through poetry. And Patty, she's reading these poems in this bookstore and at work anywhere because she's so seduced by his words. She doesn't even know what they mean at first. (laughs) Hell, I don't even know what they mean, really. But he's young and fearless and full of symbolism. Symbolism. That's something that might take off. (laughs) Right? It may be. No, it becomes a big thing. It becomes one of the most... I, I can't even begin to tell you, like, the reason why our world is today, like, creatively, music-wise, entertainment-wise, paintings, everything, a lot of it has to do with Rimbaud. Yeah, as I always say, you know, as I say and again and again, like, Rimbaud is one of the secret architects of uh, the modern world. Yes, gracious son of Pam, around your forehead <laughs> crowned with flowerlets and with laurel, restlessly roll those precious balls. Your eyes, your breast is like a lyre, twinkling circulate through your pale arms. Your heart beats in that belly where sleeps a double sex. Walk through the night gently moving that thigh, that second thigh, and that left leg. Fuck yeah. Yes. Wow, that's sexy as fuck. 
But Patty, she got a lot of <laughs> shit for reading Illuminations from her coworkers, all because it was a foreign language. Because the book had the original French version, which I, I hear is a lot better if you speak French. Yeah. <laughs> and then, because hers, yeah, so hers had the French version. And then on the other side, on, on the page across was the English translation. So whenever her coworkers saw some foreign words in there, they kept, you know, like yelling at her, like, oh, what is this communist stuff? <laughs> you know, like Patty, because she was constantly harassed yeah. by these people who she worked with because, you know, the whole like, oh, you you think you look better than me? <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 not you think you look better than me. You think you're better than me. <laughs> oh, but <laughs> you, you're too tall uh, with your books and your Tommy letters, you know, all that kind of stuff. Like, yeah. we got a red sympathizer here. So, according to Patty... Call McCarthy! Yeah, pretty much. And so, according to Patty, she's 16 years old, remember? Yeah, it's just a kid. Yeah, her co-workers even threatened to stick her head in a toilet full of piss. It's called the swirly, okay? Because well, you put your head in, or someone puts their, your head in, really. Mm-hmm. They flush the toilet, and it swirls all over. It's, it's called the swirly. Well, you have to flush in order for it to become a swirly. Otherwise, you just dunk in somebody's head and piss. Okay, and there's so not really a word for that. This is not the like-minded artistic <laughs> contemporaries she wanted to be rubbing elbows with. All right? Yeah. These are 50-year-old illiterate women named Stella and Dottie who barely have any teeth left and find it more satisfying to bully a poor, skinny teenage girl than to do anything else. So come on, get with it. Your breast is like a liar. <laughs> Twinkling circulate through your pale arms. Dottie, Dottie, Stella. oh god seven years later in 1974 patty smith's south jersey factory jobs would be combined into a song slash poem that would act as the b-side to patty smith's first single the evocatively titled piss factory which is a lot prettier than it sounds yes 16 in time to pay off i get this job in a piss factory inspecting the pipe 40 hours, $36 a week, but it's a paycheck, Jack. It's so hot in here, hot like Sahara. You can faint from the heat, but these bitches are just too lame to understand. Too goddamn grateful to get this job, to know they're getting screwed up the ass. All these women that got no teeth, gum, or cranium, and the way they suck hot sausage with me, well, I wasn't saying too much neither. I was more a schoolgirl, hard-working asshole. I figured I was speedo motorcycle, had to earn my dough, had to earn my dough. But no, you gotta, you gotta relate, babe. You gotta find the rhythm within. The floor boss slides up to me and he says, hey, sister, you're just moving too fast. You're screwing up the quota. You're doing your piecework too fast. Now you get off your Mustang, Sally. You ain't going. All right, so Patty was going to teacher's college while working the factory during the break. But that all ended abruptly when in the summer of 1966, Patty Smith found out she was pregnant at only 19 years old. Yeah. I mean, it was just a hookup. You know, it was a brief fling. Maybe uh, it definitely wasn't planned. Uh, but Patty knew she was on her own because I don't even think she told the father. No. Uh, and this, and, you know, this is not what she wanted. No, right? I don't think the father even know that he like gooshed. Oh, yeah, it was it was a whole thing. They they, they weren't quite sure what happened. Yeah. Right. But Patty knew she wasn't in a place to be a mother and stay in New Jersey for the rest of her life. So Patty made the decision. She chose to carry the fetus to term and give the baby up for adoption. Yeah. 
And it wasn't easy to give up that baby, of course. But she knew she had to move forward and not look back and move to that big city away from factory work, from the pig farms, from judgment, <laughs> from bullies to Brooklyn. We go, land ho. Sorry, I, I got excited. I got excited. Of course. Right, when, when you listen to Piss Factory, that's all you got to do. Everything you say is a statement. <laughs> I agree completely. Yeah, Piss Factory. We're going to get into Piss Factory a lot more on the next episode when we talk about the single But God. Damn, is it some inspirational music. Yeah. Now, Patty was eventually laid off from her last factory job, and her prospects around South Jersey when it came to work were severely limited. See, the New York shipyard had closed in 1966, and 30,000 people in South Jersey were put out of work. So jobs, especially for a young unmarried woman in the factory field, were limited. But if there was one thing Patty Smith knew, it was books. So she set off to New York City, not specifically because of a yearning to be free, but rather in the spirit of practicality, because that's where she could find work for which she was qualified. But that's not to say that New York City didn't have a strong appeal to a person like Patty. In New York, she could live a life without compromising who she was, a place where she could blend in without being hassled. And I can fucking relate, because it's pretty much the reason why all of us move from small towns to the big city. See, in New York City, Patti Smith could be an artist in every way and be among others who had that same uncontrollable urge because New York City in the late 60s was already on the slide towards chaos that typified it in the 70s and beyond. Yeah, it, it's going to get real dirty. <laughs> yeah. Real dirty. <laughs> yeah. And if there's one place where art thrives, it's in chaos. And therefore, there was ample room for outsiders of all sorts, gay kids who had been thrown out of their houses, weirdos who couldn't fit in anywhere else, and kids like Patti Smith who had dreams that couldn't be realized in their hometowns. And so Patty packed up her copy of Rimbo's Illuminations into a plaid suitcase, spent most of her $16 of savings on art supplies, and took the bus to Philadelphia on her way to New York City, all with a plan to knock on the door of a friend who was studying at the Pratt Institute in Brooklyn. See, her plan was to crash with a friend from Jersey who was staying in a brownstone near Pratt in the Brooklyn neighborhood of Clinton Hill. But when she arrived on his doorstep, unannounced, she was told that her friend had moved. The only person who knew the address was some guy having a nap in the back of the apartment. So after waking up this slim, shirtless man with a bearded necklace. A bearded necklace. Wearing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's the 60s. All right. It's the 60s. Maybe it's a bearded necklace. I don't know. It's like a necklace. It's a beard. It's a necklace for your chin. I get it. <laughs> a beaded necklace. A beaded necklace. He took her to the new address in near silence. When they got to the apartment, though, it was discovered that Patty's friend was gone for summer break. Yeah. Okay. First of all, this was July 4th. Yeah. Okay. This was Independence <laughs> Weekend, and she was going to go visit her friend who was in college at Pratt. So, that, I mean, I know this. we're, we're in her journey right now, but mm -hmm. if only she took some time well, to think about this a little bit more. But again, she didn't have a choice. She had to go. Well, Patty's got plans, but I wouldn't say Patty's great at planning. Yes, that's something important to know because it, it, a lot of it is instinct. You'll see well, a big calculation, but instinct. You'll see. So Patty began a long, hard month of surviving on the streets of New York because she had nowhere to stay. She spent weeks applying to bookstores, the work she'd moved to New York to do. But since she had no address, the stores couldn't contact her to tell her if she got the job or not. And all the while, when Patty wasn't lucky enough to bump into a friend of a friend who might let her use their shower or crash on their couch, 
she slept on the subway, riding from one end of the line to the other all night long. Eventually, though, Patty finally got a little luck at a bookstore across from Rockefeller Center on Fifth Avenue called Brentano's. Yes. So um, oh, why, oh, are we, why are we doing that? <laughs> well, it's, okay. It's not a pizza place. Okay. It's probably a Brentano's. Yes. Uh, yes. Are you familiar, somewhere in between. Are you familiar with Brentano's on Fifth Avenue? So Patty Smith, she was hired to work the ethnic jewelry and crafts counter at Brentano's. <laughs> I mean, okay. So she's not working the poetry section mm-hmm. like she hoped for, like all the way over there. But, you know, <laughs> this is a start. And it was only a couple days into her job that she came across the sleeping guy from Brooklyn. Hey. The one who pointed the way. The one with the bearded shirt necklace. Okay, it, but this time he wasn't wearing a shirt. He was actually, again, wearing this beaded necklace with the shirt on, underneath. And so I guess it could be, you know, it, it still touches his chest hairs. It's, it's the 70s, man. You know, it's, it's still, it's, the beads dance delicately against them. So anyway, <laughs> this guy was there to buy a Persian necklace. And Patty, she remembered him because she thought he was super cute. He's cute. Yeah. And lucky for her, she saw him again like a week later when she was on a date with this older guy that she wasn't really vibing with. She, you know, she said he was fine, but kind of square and not her type. Yeah. So when they were walking around Tompkins Square Park in the East Village after dinner, uh, she saw someone familiar approaching them in the park. It was the guy from Brooklyn. Oh, shit. Yes. So, so <laughs> Patty, she bolted up from the bench, ran over to him and said, hey, do you remember me? And he said, uh huh. And she said, okay, well, I need you to pretend to be my boyfriend right now. So she grabbed his hand, brought him over to her date, and said, I'm sorry, I have to go. This is my boyfriend, and he's really mad. <laughs> he's real mad. And before her date could even react, Patty turned to the smiling Brooklyn guy and said, run. <laughs> and then they ran and ran off. They did. They ran across the park. He barely knows this woman. She sold him a necklace once. He walked her to an apartment a block away once. And now he's holding hands with her as they're running from some guy. But it's all good because he's handling it well. Probably because he's on acid, hey man. which is why he's always smiling and just chill about everything. <laughs> and that guy, that's Brooklyn sleeping Britano's Persian necklace guy was Robert Maplethorpe. Robert Maplethorpe. Who would later be this incredible artist, a photographer, and his work is just so incredibly compelling. I mean, it can be pretty niche, though. Yeah. Uh, his, black, his powerful black and white images are pretty niche. They're photographs. But man, it's art. Yeah. Actually, it should be called man. Man, it's art. <laughs> yeah, niche. Is that the way you're describing it? Yes, a lot of it is, is very beautiful art. Uh, it could be disturbing. It could be evocative. It, I mean, he'd be the only stranger I'd ask to send me a dick pic. <laughs> that's for sure. But it's, right now, he's Bob. He's Bob, yeah. But it, it is beautiful art, but it's men. Like, it is absolutely, it's mostly pictures of men, but man, goddamn, it's beautiful. Oh, yes. So Bob, because remember, he's going as Bob until Patty came around and started calling him Robert. He's only 20 years old. He's the same age as Patty at this time. And he, uh, so, okay, really quick, Robert Maplethorpe, he grew up in Flora Park, Queens. He, he enrolled in the Pratt Institute because that's where his father went. And he had to live the life his father planned for him or else he'd go to hell for it. <laughs> but around sophomore year, Robert Maplethorpe made some changes. He changed majors. He let his hair grow long. He took the button down uniform, you know, the whole, you're not my dad, dad, <laughs> and started wearing love beats and then a sheepskin vest and then started smoking pot, had a pet monkey named Scratch. And then sometime later he dropped out of college wait, and started so you're drawing. Just gonna wait, 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 wait. So you're just going to fucking totally skate past the Edis pet monkey named Scratch. Yes. So <laughs> it, it was the sixties, man. Had the 60s. A, of course he had a pet monkey named Scratch. <laughs> That's the most 
boomer thing you can do. I'm sorry. I don't mean that in a condescending way, but, but, but it is, it is a, it's a trope. It's a trope. I guess it's a trope. You know, what's funny is that, uh, you know, who sold monkeys door to door in the 1950s? Jim Jones. Yes. So it's possible that at some point, no, it probably wouldn't be possible unless Robert he, Mablethorpe's from Queens. Okay, yeah, unless he could, yeah, and Jim Jones is selling them door to door in Indiana. But possibly if somebody out there, some Franchise. talented artist could possibly draw a picture of Jim Jones selling a pet monkey to Robert Mablethorpe, I will Venmo you 50 bucks. Really? <laughs> no, no, not 50. Well, maybe. Okay. All right. All right. Well, we're, we're gonna we're gonna bring the number up. I, okay. I promise you, yeah. it's gonna cost your your life and your career, your re- reputation. So, well, let's let's say it's a contest. Yes, because yes, he did have a pet monkey named Scratch. Because <laughs> he's living the life, man. It's the age of Aquarius, man. You know, and 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 so he's there hanging out in Brooklyn because he he has no money. Remember, his father is like, "Oh, you're not living the life I want to live," and so he's pretty much homeless. He's just hanging around. Tompkins Square Park. (laughs) And that's boom. He runs into Patty for the third time. And from that day forward, they were nearly inseparable. I mean, they were both broke and homeless together. But you know what? This is something. Patty and Robert were finally, they finally found something they were starving for. You know, like someone to talk about French poetry and tantric art with. Yeah. Someone to get creative with. Yeah. Someone who would listen. Yes. Actually, yes. (laughs) That's good. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Now, life with Robert was just a little easier than life alone on the streets, but not by much. They barely scraped by, surviving on meager meals and the kindness of friends who would let them stay at their apartments for short stints. And short stints mostly because they could be, ah, inconsiderate roommates. That's what we've been told, that (laughs) they were a little difficult, uh, particularly uh, Patty Smith, uh, you know, that she was a little judgy, a little judgmental, which is something she definitely owns up to. And apologizes for. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Which you gotta. Yeah. And she was also known to, you know, just be like sort of shocking and provocative, like walking through an apartment naked while a roommate's Midwestern parents were fucking visiting. Like it's it's that sort of stuff that you do when you're a 20 year old art kid. Is it? (laughs) I guess it is, kids. I guess it is. Make sure you do that. Yeah. Well, you hung out in the philosophy department. I was in the English department. We were right next to the art school. It happened. I I was, who knows where I was, honestly. (laughs) I I was just down the street. I I lived across the street from a Chili's. (laughs) What else can I do? No, while Patty didn't really worry much about material wealth, Robert Maplethorpe worried about money constantly. See, Patty thought of this whole thing like an adventure that would work itself out no matter what, because she knew that she could always go back home. 
But Robert knew that if he fucked up bad enough, he had nowhere to go. Put another way, if Patty had ended up in a hospital in New York City, injured or sick, her parents would be at her side in an instant. But if Robert ended up in the same situation, his father would show up only to say, this is what you get. And then he'd leave him there to fucking rot. In other words, Robert had a better idea of the stakes, and he pushed both of them with those stakes in mind. From Robert, Patty learned that it was always all about the work, and, by extension, making all that misery that they endured worth it. Now, eventually, Patty and Robert saved up enough money to get their own place and rented the entire second floor of a derelict brownstone in Brooklyn at 160 Hall Street, for $80 a month. That must be nice. In a neighborhood that now costs $3,300 for a one-bedroom. My God! (laughs) My God! (laughs) But $80 was cheap even for the time, and it was priced that cheaply because the previous tenants had been junkies who'd littered the apartment with used syringes, and they'd covered the walls in graffiti and blood, and the blood had dried to this disgusting brown. Could have been intentional. <laughs> Could have been, what, you think you're better than me? It, it, it took me years, years to make this happen. It was like modern day Guernica, or, or less than modern. <laughs> Whatever the bargain hunters, Patty and Robert took the apartment as is and got half off their deposit for cleaning and painting the apartment themselves. And after furnishing the apartment with pieces found from the street back before the era of bedbugs, the couple truly began living a shared artistic life. And get this. Together, they combined their uh, records Ooh. together. And uh, yeah, it they was... truly were confident in their soulmate and ism, weren't they? Yes. <laughs> That's a that is a confident move. It was, yes, it is very big because uh, when you and I first did that, well, first of all, it was very easy because I only had like 50 records. Yeah. And you had like a thousand. I would say my record collections more than emerge. Mine more swallowed yours. Yeah. 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 You could say that. <laughs> So when you put them in, remember, you, there's no inventory. You just put them all in. Then that's it. Th- yeah. They're in. They're yeah. in there. And, and then we're joined together in matrimony. <laughs> yeah, I was actually less nervous about marrying you than I was about combining our record collection. That would make sense. That would make sense. At least by then you would know. You know. You know now what you're in store for. And by the way, my uh, fucking record collection is very meticulously inventoried on Discogs. But we just haven't, you know, but we don't inventory which ones are mine and which ones are Carolina's. They're our, it's our record collection now. That's right. <laughs> Thank you. Thank um, you for, for, for letting everyone know. Okay. So. Last ye think. So Patty and Robert, they merged their lives together in this apartment, which wasn't just a place to live. Because remember, they want to be artists. Mm-hmm. So together, side by side, they work on their art every single day. And that's when Patty noticed how Robert could concentrate so much and for so long. Just this discipline on staying on task with your project for hours on end is something so important to learn, especially when you're working a day job or you have multiple day jobs and having to have that kind of like initiative to to just get home and then get started on what you need to do. So Patty, she learned to work like Robert every day, all day and, and or night when you're not working. And of course, it helped that sometimes Robert would be on 
amphetamines or LSD. <laughs> and Patty was only on instant coffee. Yeah. But nevertheless, Robert... Yeah, Patty's gave, sober, by the way. Yes. She's always sober. Yes. Almost always. Almost always. But nevertheless, Robert gave Patty that confidence that she needed to work on her art because it is difficult to live this way without total confidence. Yeah. It really is. Fucking Christ. Yes. Is. <laughs> A lot of times because you're winging it or, or you're just like, how do you start? How do you, you know, how do you do this? This is us. This is why we're doing this series. This is a big part of it. It's like we're showing you how. Yeah. And, and there's no one right way. This is a very difficult way to do this. But like, this is how they're going to do it. They're going to do everything the hard way. So Robert gives... There's no other fucking way. That's true. So Robert <laughs> gives Patty that confidence. He showed her a way to direct her energy and have like a more disciplined, structured way of, of, of being creative, of working out her ideas. Because right now, right now she's just drawing and painting. Yeah. And, you know, and, and right now they're also total hippies. <laughs> you know, Patty at this point has at least on like three or four scarves on her body at all times. <laughs> and their friends would come over and share a joint and play hand drums together while reciting Timothy Leary's <laughs> psychedelic prayers. Yeah. There was no... TV, no phone, no radio, <laughs> just a record player, a handful of books and their art that they would work on. Of course, that was it. They had no money. Remember, they would eat like day old bread. Yeah. And, 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 and the, what's it? The lettuce soup, which was <laughs> which is water and bouillon or, or some sort of broth with lettuce as garnish. Yeah. This is how they were doing this from the like from nothing, from well, less than nothing. Yeah. And, and, you know, and this was also a life that Patty Smith was used to living. You know, like she grew up like not necessarily like poor, poor, but, you know, she wasn't like Bernard Sumner or anything like living in, you know, the slums of Salford. But she's lower middle class. You know, she always, she wanted for a lot when she was growing up. Yeah. Her, her parents, uh, you know, great parents, loving parents, but they had to raise four kids mm -hmm. and they had to take out loans and they had to hide away from these loan people and, <laughs> uh, and creditors and, and creditors. That's what they're called. <laughs> and, 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 you know, of course, cutting coupons and, and putting down stamps. And there, it, it is very particular how her mom would just try to get all like whatever way she can to stretch their their little bit of money. Yeah. And, you know, she actually, all of these experiences she put together uh, in a song that she put on her first album, Horses. It's called Free Money. It's fucking amazing. Every night before I go to sleep Find a ticket, win a lottery Scoop the pearls up from the sea Cash them in and buy you all the things you need Every night before I rest my head See those dollar bills go swirling in my bed money by you things you never had oh baby it would mean so much to me oh baby to buy all the things you need now Robert had gotten a job as an Usher at the Fillmore East, which was one of the hippest music venues in New York City at the time. And he was there right at its opening. But because Robert was an usher at the Fillmore, 
he was able to score tickets to a band that Patty desperately wanted to see. On March 22nd, 1969, she was able to see The Doors perform at their absolute peak. This sounds cool. It's one of the time travel shows. It's, it's a time travel show. It's a time show. travel show yeah. without a doubt. Let's fucking check it out. that guitar part right at the very beginning before he starts doing the doors. Like that thing, it comes on like the rush of an acid trip. It's perfect. <laughs> now, if you'll remember from our Stooges series, Iggy Pop also saw the doors at a formative time. Although the show Iggy saw was of a highly intoxicated Jim Morrison who sang in a high-pitched Minnie Mouse voice for most of the show to purposefully antagonize the audience. Iggy Pop was then inspired by Morrison's antagonism, and it greatly informed how Iggy would perform during the years that the Stooges created punk and changed the musical landscape forever. Patti Smith had much the same experience, but she caught the doors on one of the nights when Jim Morrison was absolutely electric. This show has been described in the years since, specifically the show, as iconic. Yes, yes, very much so. She wrote in her book, Just Kids, that she observed Jim Morrison's every move in a state of cold hyper-awareness with a feeling of both kinship and contempt. She wrote that she could feel his self-consciousness as well as his supreme confidence, this mixture of beauty and self-loathing, a mystic pain, as she mystic called it. Mystic pain. Oh, <laughs> yeah. that's a... It's, of course it's the first song we're going to write. <laughs> of course. In other words, he was everything a girl like Patti Smith could want in a poet at that time in her life. And indeed, Jim Morrison, as you said, had also been inspired by Rimbaud. But she wrote that after watching Jim Morrison perform, she thought that she could one day do the exact same thing that Morrison had done that night, even though that she had nothing in her experience to make her think that that was possible. But even though Robert had gotten those tickets for Patti, the first phase of their relationship was at an end because Maplethorpe was finally starting to accept and acknowledge who he really was. He's gay. He's gay. <laughs> All right for gay. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's pretty much it. I mean, like, we can go down a whole lot, like, because their whole relationship does change 
quite a bit from from them being together together to them breaking up to them uh, coming back to each other uh, and then it's sort of kind of resuming some sort of a relationship kind of and, and then it later becomes they become roommates it, it's it, it goes through several different phases until the end where they decide they realize like we are in so many ways soulmates or it, it, you know, for lack of a better, less cheesier term, <laughs> we are, we are, but we are some, you know, we are something, yeah. the two of us, uh, whether they are not romantically involved or not. It's so a deep connection. It is a very deep connection, yeah, especially I, with, uh, you know, her learning how to put her like creativity together, how to work, how, seriously, how to work. Yeah. How he to taught work. her how to work and he taught her how to love it. And, and, and he just showed her a lot of patience and compassion and, and understanding and caring. And there's been a lot written about Patti Smith and Robert Maplethorpe's relationship throughout the years. Uh, but I think that's part of why, no, it's not part of why, it's why Patti Smith wrote Just Kids. It sets the record straight. You know, actually saying like, it wasn't some calculated thing. It wasn't us just trying to be famous. We were just kids. That's the point. That's the whole, that's the title yeah, of the fucking book. Yeah, you know, the book, it won a national <laughs> book award. It's great. It's, it's very much recommended. Now, there's certainly a lot of gossip involving Patty and Robert's breakup, as you said. It's just what you'd expect from a couple of art kids in their early 20s trying to survive in New York City in the late 60s, early 70s. At the end of it, though, Patty went one direction and Robert went another. Namely, Robert went to the Castro District in San Francisco, which in the late 60s was one of the few havens in the entire world for gay men. But even though their slow drift was acrimonious at times, Patty and Robert came out of the other side as lifelong friends. And when Robert went to San Francisco, Patty went to Paris. Yes, because Patty thought this is a good time to finally go to Paris, you know, but backpacking through all of Arthur Rimbaud's old famous haunts and seeing where Charles Baudelaire was buried, where Edith Piaf had sung, where Henry Kissinger secretly met with the head of the North Vietnamese delegation to negotiate peace talks over that pesky war they were having. <laughs> there. Yeah, all there, the sites. Paris, man. Full of stuff. Yeah. You know, that's what I call Paris. I call it full of stuff. We were just there and man, it was full of stuff. It was full of stuff. Paris, uh, the city full of stuff. Love it. Love it, though. I want to go back again and again. Then sometime during her two month trip, Patty woke up to see all the French newspapers with one big headline. Brian Jones from the Rolling Stones. Est Mert. Mort. Mort. Sorry, I spelled it wrong. Mort. Brian Jones is dead. Sorry. I'm sorry. We don't mean to have a laugh track. Brian Jones is dead. He'd been found dead at the bottom of his pool at sorry. the age of 27. No. It's not funny. The, He's the first member of the 27 Club. Well, after Robert Johnson. Yeah, yeah there wasn't no. a club, like, per se, at the moment. You know, no, there not, were no dues to be collected. Yes. No. Uh, so the coroner called it death by misadventure. He had been dealing with, uh, not the coroner, Brian Jones had been dealing with substance abuse for quite a while and was just fired from the Rolling Stones uh, just a few weeks before he died. Yeah, he was. Now, it, it was a very sad ending because while they were doing in one of the last recording sessions, Brian Jones was asking Mick Jagger, like, hey, what can I do? And Mick Jagger said, I don't know. What can you do? It was one of those things like, Ugh. yeah, well, yeah. You know what? I heard that if you read Keith Richards book, uh, apparently Brian Jones is a bit of a dick. <laughs> he was an asshole. Yeah, what, did uh, Keith, what did Keith Richards say? You told me about that. He, he said, yeah, he died. And it's a sad thing. Anyway, we moved on. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like it, they I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's sad that this person is dead. I don't know this person, but apparently it seemed like there was no love lost. Yeah. And then they, they moved on forward. 
Now, while Brian Jones wasn't much of a songwriter, he was or a very well liked within his own group. <laughs> he was a fantastically talented multi instrumentalist, and he added a sonic texture to the earlier, arguably better songs of the Rolling Stones, including perhaps the most well known sitar riff of all time. I love this. Oh, yeah. This is Brian Jones. Paint it black. <laughs> yeah, we, we got to make sure they, have, they know the they 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 song. They know this song. She's a huge Rolling Stones fan, huge. and especially Brian Jones. She has a she definitely has this thing called other guy syndrome, where <laughs> you always like the other guy. If you oh, like yeah. Lance Bass, you like the other guy, <laughs> which I get it. Yeah. Uh, so she, Patty, she, you know, she was very upset by hearing about this, so she laid her drawing pencils aside and grabbed a piece of paper and started writing what would be a series of poems in tribute to Brian Jones. So for the first time ever, Patty was taking her writing and directing it to her love of rock and roll, mm -hmm. which means she's onto something. She is. Now, Patty had stayed in contact with Robert Maplethorpe back in New York City during her travels in Paris. In the time that Patty had been gone, Maplethorpe's work and life had started drawing towards the darker sides of the local gay S&M scene, the documentation of which would eventually help make Maplethorpe a legend. In one letter describing a drawing he'd done, Maplethorpe wrote, quote, I have a hook coming out of where his prick should be, where I'm going to hang that chain with dice and skulls. All right. Right back. XOXO. <laughs> wow. Robert was also complaining of health problems and had written to Patty that his gums were white and achy and that he sometimes didn't have enough money to eat. And as it was, by the time Patty returned to New York City on July 21st, 1969, Maplethorpe was almost at death's door. He'd been staying at a loft on Delancey Street in the Lower East Side under the Williamsburg Bridge. And when Patty walked through his door, she found him suffering from trench mouth due to malnutrition with a high fever to boot. But that first night, Patty Smith's first night back in New York City, she and Robert were awoken at dawn by gunshots and screams. Like we said, slow slide into chaos. The cops told everyone to keep their doors locked, and when Patty opened the door the next morning, she saw the chalk outline of a young man who'd been murdered right outside of their apartment in the hallway. So despite Robert's sickness, he and Patty immediately agreed that they couldn't stay at that we apartment. We should go. <laughs> we need to. We should leave. And after leaving everything behind except for their art portfolios, Robert and Patty went across town to the Hotel Allerton, 
on 8th Avenue and West 22nd Street. Now, the Allerton was one of the worst flop houses in the city, and it would remain so until it was replaced by a luxury hotel in 2007. By Patty's recollection, which is said to be the best description of the Allerton ever written, because most people who stayed there died, the place reeked of piss and exterminator fluid with no running water and stained, lice-infested pillows. The hallways, she wrote, were filled with derelicts and junkies. And since the place was so hot, every door was left open and she could see half-naked addicts in their rooms trying to find a vein. The one guest who showed Patty any regard was a former ballet dancer who'd fallen to morphine addiction. And in between impromptu dance performances, he sang atonal versions of sad songs like this classic from Nina Simone, Wild is the wind. Love me, love me, love me, say you do. Let me fly away with you for my love is like the wind and wild is the wind it's very noir and through the days spent at the Allerton Robert Maplethorpe showed every sign that he was marching ever closer to death by poverty his gums had abscessed and he soaked the bed with fever sweat night after night. Finally, Patty asked the ballet dancer if there was anything they could do. And the dancer basically said, yeah, leave. Yes. Okay. Thank you, angel of death. We should go. <laughs> we should Let's get out. Go. Let's go. Let's get out. Oh God, I'm going to fucking die. I know. Let's get you to a hospital or something cheaper than that. <laughs> and so since Patty and Robert didn't have enough money to pay their bill, they carefully and quietly climbed down the fire escape past the Allerton's infamous neon sign. Robert went down first, half-conscious, and Patty followed with their portfolios. Patty then hailed a cab, got Robert inside, and said two words, Chelsea Hotel. And the cab driver was like, I think your friend in the backseat is dying. <laughs> yeah, I'm real, dying. I'm real fucking sick, man. Give me the Chelsea fuck Hotel. Okay. All right. Okay. Now, the Chelsea Hotel is still one of the legendary artistic landmarks of New York City. At least when you look at it from the outside. Inside, it's a much different place. While it was certainly the temporary home of seminal writers like Arthur Miller, Jack Kerouac, and Dylan Thomas, it was also the inspiration for heartbreaking songs like Leonard Cohen's Chelsea Hotel Number no. 2, which is inspired by a night Cohen spent at the Chelsea with Janis Joplin. I remember you well in the Chelsea Hotel You were talking so brave and so sweet Giving me head on the unmade bed While the limousine Wait in the street Those were the reasons That was New York We were running for the money and the flesh And that was called love For the workers in song 
probably still is for those of them left. Yeah, but you got away, didn't you, babe? You just turned your back on the crowd. You got away, I never once heard you say, I need you. I don't need you. I need you. I don't need you. And all of them jiving around. Hmm, that gives me fucking chills. What's Chelsea Hotel number two mean? <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I'm not a big enough Leonard Cohen fan to know if it's why it's Chelsea Hotel number two. No dogs in space at gmail.com. <laughs> I'm sure you do. I'm Leonard sure, Cohen. I'm sure there are <laughs> Leonard Cohen fans out there that are screaming at their fucking iPhones right now. They might be. They there might be. They that, might be. At least there's one. Yeah, let us know. Okay. <laughs> so Patty and Robert, they get out of the cab and into, as you said, the famous Chelsea Hotel. And Patty, she knew from the morphing addicted ballet dancer that the manager there would sometimes let artists stay there in exchange for their art. Instead of money. <laughs> and if Stanley Bard liked you enough and your art was halfway decent, he might let you live there. So Patty put Robert on a bench and walked into the manager's office and told the manager, Stanley Bard, hey, we're incredible artists and it's just your luck. We're between apartments now. <laughs> We'd love to live here. We don't have much or any money. But as I said, we're incredible. Really look at our portfolio. I mean, I'm pretty good. But Robert, he's on another level. He's going to be super rich and famous one day. And Stanley's like the, the guy who's dying right outside my office. <laughs> they am fucking dying here, man. Yes. <laughs> him, him. Plus, you know, she's like, and don't worry about him. He'll be fine. I I, I just got back from Paris, uh, but I, I do have a job at Scribner's bookstore. I can talk to them, get an advance maybe. And Stanley interrupted with, whoa, you said you have a job, mm-hmm. like like a full time salary job and everything. Yeah, you can fucking live here. <laughs> Come on in. Welcome. That's all you had to say. You see, no one has a job here. And it's a rare sight when someone pays rent on time or at all. Hey, I'm looking at you, Ellen Ginsberg. He's hiding behind that giant vase in the, in the fern in the lobby. Don't act like you can't hear me. <laughs> he can hear me. So Stanley gave Patty and Robert the smallest apartment. So really, it was a room. Yeah. The smallest room in the whole place. Room 1017. And it cost $55 a week, which it's just enough with Patty's $70 a week salary. They could get by on that. And pretty soon they got the hotel doctor to come take care of Robert. And, and he got all better. And, and Patty was able to pay the rent. Stanley gave him back their portfolios and said, here, I, I didn't even open it. I, I don't want this. I just love that you have a job. And so Patty and Robert, you know, they, they got settled in there. They became friends with their neighbors, Harry Smith, who was an eccentric artist, collector, hoarder, and, and fantastic all around. Yeah. Was he the guy who, uh, he's the Folkways guy, right? Yes, yeah. Yes. I mean, th- this man is one of the most important uh, archive or archi- archivists, archivist. archivists. Anyway, he's the one, he's the reason why we know so much about early American folk music that we do. He's the one that made sure that music didn't get lost. That was their neighbor. And their other neighbor was like this artist filmmaker, Sandy Daly, who lived uh, next door and had the silver, the, the big uh, balloons, the Andy Warhol silver balloons in her apartment. And that's it. It was only white. Ah. I know. It's like an abfab <laughs> sketch. It's great. It's great. Okay. So before you know it, you know, they're back working on their art. They're making beaded necklaces. They're playing the hand drums, eating God knows what, but at least they're back, baby. They're back. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. 
Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Now, the Chelsea had for many years been fertile ground for creatives in New York City. But in 1969... It was a magnet for influential writers, artists, and musicians who shaped the latter half of the 20th century. Patti Smith, being one of those people, put herself in the middle of everything, learning from the legends that walked through the Chelsea's lobby day after day. There she met and learned from the beat writers who came before the hippies. There was poet Allen Ginsberg who thought Patti was a boy and tried having sex with her as a result and has some quite... Uh, controversial things in his past. Controversial? They're stupid. <laughs> stupid things. This man should be in jail. He was in Nambla. He should be in jail. Yes. There was William S. Burroughs, the spiritual godfather of punk, whom Patty would later befriend and later go visit at Burroughs' apartment on the Bowery, winding her way through the junkies huddled around trash can fires. Okay, all right. You're doing some noir stuff, but this is really... <laughs> Like good fellas, you know, and then there's Johnny two times. <laughs> I'm gonna go pick up the papers, pick up the papers. Uh, but no, no, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I like it. Okay, go ahead. The junkies huddled around the trash can fires. She had legs for days, her legs were running for days. And there was beat poet Gregory Corso, who wrote one of the first poems confronting the existence of the atomic bomb. And Corso would later take Patty under his wing in the New York poetry scene. Corso, extremely underrated out of all those fucking beat Love writers. Him. I'll talk about him in a minute. Love Gregory Corso. But while one might think that Patty spent most of her time hobnobbing, she was absorbing everything she could from these artists. And at the same time, worked harder than ever at finding her voice in the smallest room at the Chelsea with Robert Maplethorpe. Yeah, because Patty right now, she's drawing and painting and, and then she's adding speech bubbles or balloons, you know, with words inside. So then it's a comic strip. Mm -hmm. And but then she realizes, like, after a while, it's like, oh, I'm just drawing words. So she got rid of like the large sheets of paper that were tacked on the wall. And then she, instead, she sat down on the floor with a typewriter and started writing. Yeah. OK, OK. So this oh this. This didn't happen overnight, okay? <laughs> but as as we're she's spending more time with these beat writers and poets, she's getting more encouragement to write more and more. And meanwhile, Robert, you know, he's finding his own crowd to hang with. He's in with many of the Andy Warhol factory scene people. Yeah, yeah, he, he's busy doing that. 
But he did take Patty to the factory once to see some footage of Andy Warhol's latest movie, Trash, which wasn't really her scene. Yeah. And it was extra weird when Fred Hughes, you know, Andy Warhol's uh, business manager, he looked at Patty and made a rude comment about her hair. He's like, oh, that's very Joan Baez. But he said in a condescending way because Joan Baez has great hair and she looks fantastic. She absolutely does. I would never want to go hang out at the factory. Yes. (laughs) I mean, because they made everything sound ugly. Everything. I'd just be like the Ashton brothers just sitting in the corner waiting for Iggy to wrap it up. Don't pick on me. Yeah. (laughs) And this was enough to jar Patty into thinking of going home, grabbing some scissors, getting some cutout magazine photos of Keith Richards and going to town on her head. So yes, she cut her hair all fun and androgynous-like, which mm. she had to learn that word, like Paul <laughs> Westerberg did too. <laughs> like, you're like, what is that word? Okay, I'm going to write about that. Uh, Andro- Androgynous. Oh, that means like Keith Richards. Cool. I didn't know there was a word for that. Patty didn't understand it. Uh, she thought it meant ugly and beautiful at the same time. <laughs> and we're like, no, no, that's uh, not it. Uh, androgynous having uh, masculine and feminine characteristics, right? Yeah. It's, it's all, it's a, it's a bit of everything. Yeah. Is that what we call it? Of of course. All right. Perfect. Thank David you, Bowie in the 70s. In case you guys were wondering. Okay. So Patty, she got a lot of attention from her new hair. Suddenly she seems interesting enough to talk to. Mm-hmm. Yes. Including Bob Newworth, who who was this a musician. He was a folk singer, a songwriter, a painter and road manager, a close friend and confidant of Bob Dylan's. Mm-hmm. He was on the cover of Highway 61 Revisited. That's right. Yes. He uh, at, and at this point when Patty Smith is meeting him at the at the Chelsea Hotel, uh, he's managing Janis Joplin while they're on the road. So Bobby Newworth, he took an interest in Patty, who he always called the poet. Yeah. He always introduced everyone come meet the poet. <laughs> he loved doing that. And he encouraged her writing, even though it's like, Brian Jones, really? Ugh. Okay, why why are you doing this? But that's good. It's good. He he liked her writing style and he and he saw there was a potential to develop into song lyrics. Mm-hmm. So he told her, I want a song out of you. But the contemporary of Patty's who would be halfway between the worlds of poetry and rock and roll, was another denizen of the Chelsea Hotel. Met outside in the middle of a fight with Robert Maplethorpe, Patty's new friend was Jim Carroll. I love that song. I love that song. I knew Jim Carroll when he was going to pass away that he knew he was like, you know, eventually you're going to have to add to this song. He was fantastic. Yeah. Jim Carroll is absolutely wonderful. Well, no, mostly as the guy who wrote the book, The Basketball Diaries, about his time as both a basketball star and a heroin addict while he was attending high school in Manhattan. Leonardo DiCaprio movie. That's right. Carroll was a published poet in 1969 and still 
very much in the throes of addiction when he met Patti Smith and Robert Maplethorpe. Now, in 1970, after less than a year into Patti and Robert's tenure at the Chelsea, they moved into an art space just a few blocks away on West 23rd. Carol, who had just started working for Andy Warhol writing film dialogue, briefly came along. Yeah, he kind of moved in with them for a while. Like they were together, Patty and Jim Carroll. It, it was it was through his company. It was through his company. <laughs> Rent, however, still had to be paid. So to supplement Patty's bookstore income and to feed Carol's heroin addiction, Robert and Jim hustled on 53rd and 3rd, where Dee Dee Ramon would do the same just a few years later and immortalize his experiences in a song called What Else? But 53rd and 3rd. Okay, well, actually. Uh, <laughs> All right, but you're going to well actually me right now? That's, that, that's fine. That's it's fine. I, Do it. Go ahead. Fine. Said. It's I your right. It's that. your right as a wife. <laughs> um, so Robert Maplethorpe and Jim Carroll, uh, them hustling on 53rd and 3rd, not quite. It was behind the Bloomingdale's. <laughs> but Dee Dee probably did go down 53rd and 3rd, which is why we, we're we just shoehorning a really good song we like. <laughs> because yeah. we couldn't find anything about going behind Bloomingdale's in Midtown East. Back behind the bloom. No, that's back behind the bloom. <laughs> by the men's apartment. You see, it's difficult next to the cupcakes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did it. I did it. I did it. Next to the cupcakes right off the end train. <laughs> Congratulations. That's my song about hustling. <laughs> anyway. Oh, where was I? Sorry. Okay. So yes, Patty Smith. Right. Patty Smith, they're 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 in that new space right on 23rd Street above the Oasis bar, uh, where they're kind of roommates with Jim Carroll, but then they they kind of break up for a while mm-hmm. anyways. Uh but while uh Jim and Robert were out doing stuff. Mm-hmm. Patty had <laughs> visitors like Gregory Corso. Yeah. I mean, having visitors like Gregory, like famous poet Gregory Corso, like this is what a life. Yeah. This is what a life that she just put together that she was just like, I'm going to go and do this. Well, a so, lot of the, the, but these people see promise in Patty Smith, like especially Gregory Corso sees promise, right? Bobby Newirth, even Janis Joplin. They, you know, they all see promise in Patty Smith. There's just something, there's a vibe that people are attracted to, especially other artists. That's true because Gregory Corso would walk in on Patty while she's sitting at the typewriter, just wriggling around, you know, shotgunning her instant coffee while surrounded by cups full of piss. And Gregory would be like, yeah, 
This is my kind of place. <laughs> yeah, art, motherfucker. <laughs> this is cool. I like this. You're typing like a madman. I like it. So he encouraged Patty, like, because he did see promise, like you said. He gave her a list of books for her to read, uh, what dictionary to get, uh, and, and took her to the St. Mark's Poetry Project. And he would, and he'd show her, like, okay, these are the poetry readings, but they're boring. <laughs> because he would heckle and yell, like, shit, shit, no blood. This sucks. Get a transfusion. My God, everything's boring. <laughs> like, he, he's, he's, that guy. It's one of my favorite heckles. Put some fucking blood in it. I, I love that. I, I, that. That's just, you could yell that at any fucking show and just immediately just either the artist is going to go okay or it's just, they're just going to wilt like a flower. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And you be that artist that says, all right, motherfucker, and then put some fucking blood in it. Right. But also don't heckle. Don't heckle as well. If, yeah. if you can help it. Unless yeah. you're Gregory Corso, because I mean, he was like the fast talking, you know, younger a guy from the beat movement. Like he was the youngest one. Yeah. Please read Happy Birthday with Death. It's fantastic. If you want to, if you want to get into the foray that is poetry. Yes. Please check that out. That's a really great place to start. Yes, I agree completely. Now, even though Patty's entire bag would soon be poetry, it was not her first outlet for onstage performance. In 1970, Patty was asked to act in an improvised play put together by Warhol superstar Jackie Curtis, whose drag queen style is said to have been a huge influence on the glam movement to come, and that includes David Bowie. Now, the improvisational nature of the show certainly held a certain allure to Patti Smith, especially considering how her role was a tough-talking speed freak with an over-the-top Italian accent and a huge fake cock hanging between her legs. They loved fake cocks during this time in experimental theater in New York City. Every play had a fake cock. Symbolism. Isn't that great? <laughs> but Jim Carroll, who came out to see Patti perform, he thought she was wasted on theater. Another audience member, however, found Patty to be one of the most engaging people he'd ever seen. This man was a rock journalist, record store employee, and sometime musician from central New Jersey named Lenny Kay. And he would eventually become Patty's longest serving collaborator as the guitarist for the Patty Smith Group. Yes, yes. I can't wait. I'm so glad that Lenny Kay's here. By the way, he was born in Manhattan. He was from Brooklyn and Queens and then made his way to Jersey. Yeah. And Lenny Kay is a uh, he's a New York City treasure. Like yes. if you've been in the like the sort of this sort of scene, like you've seen Lenny Kay. If you've been to the WFMU Record Fair, you've seen Lenny Kay. If you've been to one of those tribute shows at the Bowery Electric, you've seen Lenny Kay. And, I, and we have every time. And we've been too <laughs> afraid to say hello. Always. It, although I keep telling you to do that. I don't like, want to. I know, but I, I don't, don't have wanna. any guts. I, I don't have any guts to go up to someone <laughs> and then ruin their perfectly fun afternoon. <laughs> I have been in his apartment, but that's going to be a story for later on in the uh, later on in the series. But we've never met him. <laughs> Just so you know. I know that sounds odd. It does. Well, it, it, it bears repeating. Repeating later on. Now, in 1970, when Kay first saw Patty on stage, he was working at a record store in the village called Village Oldies, owned by a man named Bleaker Bob, who would later open one of the most famous record stores in the world, Bleaker Bob's. Previous to working at Village Oldies, though, Lenny Kay was a garage rock musician, and he'd cut a respectable single in 1966 under the pseudonym of Link Cromwell. That song was called... Crazy like a fox. They call me neurotic and say I'm psychotic because I let my hair grow long. They say that I'm crazy and they call me lazy because I don't like to work all day long. Well, I'm a 
I think he, uh, uh, the Lenny K had a connection uh, from his uh, uncle to record that song. He didn't write that song to record that. And, yeah. and it didn't really take off. Kind of like uh, how Lou Reed, when he started uh, with the whole the ostrich, do the ostrich yeah. uh, with his fake band. But that didn't take off. So it lasted like a month and then they went back to their normal lives. Kind of the same idea. Yeah, sort of like that. Yeah. yeah. So Lenny K was just like, okay, I'm no longer Link Cromwell. It, just, <laughs> it feels like an evil twin's name. Um, but Link, he got from Link Ray, which is cool. And uh, decided just to go back to regular life. Yeah, yeah. And by 1970, Lenny K had settled more into the world of rock journalism, writing reviews for Rolling Stone and Crawdaddy, as well as a monthly music column for a men's magazine called Cavalier, which was like Playboy, but hip. At the same time, Patti Smith was also writing music journalism, pieces in Crawdaddy about the Rolling Stones and such. During her time as a writer, she came across a piece written by Lenny Kay about a cappella singing, specifically an article about doo-wop groups. But what really got Patti's attention was the fact that Lenny Kay obviously loved music and had no interest in just talking shit, which was great because he was a former musician and sometimes that does happen in the world of rock journalism. This was in stark contrast to most rock journalism in 1970, which had become more vitriolic, more cynical, and snarkier than a fucking hundred Twitter threads mixed with the worst 3.2 pitchfork review. And so Patti Smith called up Lenny Kay to tell him that she dug what he did. And eventually, Patti started coming in to Village Oldies with her sister Linda when Lenny was working so they could hang out and listen to garage and doo-wop records. They'd listen to stuff like this, a song called Mama Lucy by the Moon Glows. One of those nice, dirty old songs. <laughs> cool. my mama Lucy. She's a brand new coochie. Ding dong, baby. Now I don't need a baby. So much fun. Yeah, I could totally dance to this with Lenny K. <laughs> yeah. If you'll let me. <laughs> We'll ask him next time we see him. <laughs> yeah. Now, while Patty was just starting a friendship with Lenny, she was moving further away from Robert Maplethorpe. Even though the two were still terribly close, their lives were diverging into different scenes, with Maplethorpe falling into the world of fine art while Patty moved into the realm of poetry. They did, however, still support each other as much as they could. When Patty expressed an interest in doing a live poetry reading, Robert Maplethorpe arranged for her to perform at a Wednesday night poetry reading at St. Mark's Church. This show was headlined by Warhol regular Gerard Malonga, who had, if you'll remember, been the onstage whip dancer for the Velvet Underground just a few years prior. Yeah, but he wasn't just a whip dancer. Okay? He was a very well-known <laughs> he was, he poet was. Yeah. Who, who's published and everything. And and of course, part of the Andy Warhol like scene and, and people and everything that him and uh, Robert Maplethorpe became friends. Yes. But 
For her part in the show, Patty didn't just want to recite poetry. See, as journalist Philip Shaw and writer Will Hermes both put it, where artists like Bob Dylan and Jim Morrison had approached poetry through rock and roll, Patty was coming to rock and roll via poetry. And so, to give her performance that extra edge, she planned to include electric guitar, the first time an electric instrument had ever been played in the historic St. Mark's Church. And since Patty wasn't really in the music scene just yet, she asked the only dude that she thought could handle it. Slash. <laughs> sorry, I was thinking of November Rain. Sorry, I'm sorry. Lenny Kay. Right, sorry. <laughs> Did I deflate you a little, Lenny Kay? A little bit. Lenny Kay. Yeah, because remember, Patty, you said she didn't want her poetry reading to be boring. Boring. Or Put like some that. fucking blood in it. Exactly. She didn't want She didn't want Gregory Corso after her. So Patty went to Lenny Kay at his job and said, hey, can you play guitar? And he's like, yeah, a little. Okay, uh, can you play something like a car crash, like with feedback and stuff on your guitar? Um, yeah, I think so. Yeah. And that was it. That was it. You're booked. You got the right attitude. Yeah, Let's probably. do this. And so Patty was on the right track. She wanted to make an impression on everyone at the St. Mark's Church Poetry Project. She actually, uh, uh, did you know she um, she wrote letters to, to all the heads of the St. Mark's Poetry Project uh, saying, hey, watch out. <laughs> There's a new poet in town and it's me Patty Smith she sent I swear to God she sent them all goofy letters of pictures and notes like she's the Riddler in Gotham City uh, riddle me this Batman I, you know she, okay she admits uh, what has four legs and ticks <laughs> no walking clock oh <laughs> Or a dog. So I may have stolen that joke from the Simpsons. Riddle me this. So Patty, <laughs> she admits she was pretty obnoxious yeah. at the time when she was younger. She has a lot of bravado. She's not shy. And she has a lot to say. She's a maniac. Mm -hmm. But one thing she does have is raw talent. She does. And that's what we're about to find out. So at St. Mark's Church on a Wednesday night, like you said, February 10th, 1971, Patty Smith with Lenny Kay and his guitar next to her, she walks on stage and dedicates her reading to all that is criminal. Yeah. And then she sings a version of Mac the Knife. It goes okay. It's great. I mean, I really like it. Like, it's a very, it's, it's the Bertolt, uh, Bertolt, Brecht. Brecht. Brecht, yeah. yeah Bertolt yeah. Brecht because it was his birthday. Yeah, Bertolt, yeah. Because it, it, when if you've never heard him, it's very like, Black, come along with the Black Rider. Like, she it's very sounds, Tom Waitsy. Yeah, but she makes her sound, uh, the, the song sound like Madeline Kahn in Blazing Saddles. <laughs> like, I'm so tired. Um, Always coming and going and coming, coming. so soon. So, she she does that, but you know, she's building up her confidence. Yeah. She sounds good. She's uh she's using all the nervous ticks, the ums, the hold on, hold on. Where's my paper? Yeah. Did you have my paper? Oh, did, you, God. did you leave it in my car? Okay, <laughs> go get my, my car. I parked right behind the dumpster right there. You know, that kind of stuff. Like yeah. she's not, she doesn't have it all together, but she's gonna go forth with it. She she goes into her poems, just like this one, uh, this one particular poem that she wrote in 1967. You might find it familiar. Mm -hmm. It's called Oath. Christ died for somebody's sins, but not mine. Melting in a pot of thieves, wild card up the sleeve, thick heart of stone, my sin's my own. I mark my own palms with black X. Adam placed no hex on me. I embrace Eve and take full responsibility for every pocket I've picked, every Johnny A song I've bawled to, long before a church made it neat and right 
Christ, I'm giving you the goodbye, firing you tonight. I can make my own light shine, and darkness too is equally fine. You can get strung up for my brother, honey, but for me, I draw the line. You died for somebody's sins, baby, but not mine. Christ died for somebody's sins, but not mine. <laughs> not mine. Not mine. I know. I, we're, we're having fun with we're having fun with Patty Smith as yeah. two performers here in this room. Um, and you know, it's her first real show, of course. You know, it's it's her first time on stage, but you could see something there. Yeah. I mean, Patty Smith's little rascal's delivery of that first line. <laughs> it's adorable. It, it might not sound as if it foretells the career of a woman who would become one of the most electrifying live performers of the decade to come. But the point is that the sentiment was there. The words were there. The fucking blood was there. And that first line, so awkwardly delivered in 1971, would four years later become one of the most iconic album openers in rock history. Jesus died for somebody's sins, but not mine. Milton, pot of thieves, wild cord of my sleeve, thick heart of stone. My sins, my own, they belong to me. She got better. <laughs> yes, she did. Yeah, she figured it out, man. Yes. And so, of course, uh, we're going to find out how much better she gets later yeah. in the next year, in the next yeah. episode. Yeah. Actually, episode after next. In the episode after next. But here, you know, this is we're back to 1971. Yeah. Right. She she did that. Not mine. <laughs> and, and then she goes on. She does her poetry. And then she ends with a big one, you know, where, where the feedback, the car crash comes in. Right. The, the thing that she wanted from Lenny K. Here it is. Ballad of a Bad Boy. This is for Sam. <laughs> I'm cracked up and rolled at your feet. I rolled in flames and I rolled in a pit. Will you cover me with a tide? You cover me with your shit. And I could have got up. But the crowd didn't scream, no. That boy is evil. He's too bad a car crash but the thing about ballad of a bad boys you listen to it now and it doesn't necessarily sound that transgressive you know it just sounds like a bit of a mess you know it sounds like a couple of people fucking around on stage it's a it's a great first show it's a great first show that's the thing it has legs it has legs, legs for days <laughs> but you got to remember this is 1971 nothing like this has ever been done before. A lot of people point to this performance and not just Patti Smith's entire show, but this specifically Ballad of a Bad Boy as one of the first punk moments in New York City. And not just in New York City, but in the entire fucking world. Something changes in the New York scene at this moment. Patti Smith changes. Lenny K changes. The scene changes. The fucking city changes, whether it knows it or not. 
That was really good. That was. Re- Why don't we just end it there? I'm serious. Yeah. That was really good. Okay, stay tuned. I, I had a little bit, but I don't care. That that was perfect. It, right. Everything changes, and guess what? Next week you're gonna find out more about that change. Yep. Part one. Uh, Patty Smith, thank you for listening so much. This is great. We're getting into her life, her poetry, and now part two is gonna be about rock and roll, baby. Goddamn yes. right. And part three is about having sex, rock and roll, and poetry together, just having sex together, and then breaking up and and then just loving each other. And just all this much that's like <laughs> sexual. So Very thank you sexual. for listening. Thank you for your patience. Yeah. Um, it's been a long year. It has been a very long year. You know, fuck, I got long COVID. That set us back quite a bit. So thank you so much for being patient with us uh, and uh, making these, you know, episodes happen. And for listening to all the extra play episodes uh, that we've been doing our goddamn best uh, to put out on time. Thanks for all of the kind comments that we've had uh, on yes. those. Of course, extra plays come out uh, in between series. Um, and uh, thanks. Just thank you. Y'all are fucking amazing fans. The emails that we get are so sweet. The messages that we get are so sweet. So so thank you so much. Thank you so much for being sweet. I do appreciate that. We both do. We all do here. And uh, check out our Instagram at No Dogs Pod for any kind of uh, fun things. Uh, we, sometimes we post fun things or and of course updates and when new episodes come out. And uh, and, and Carolina Danger Doggo, that's my Instagram. You can check that out for also other I guess fun things. Fun things, yeah. <laughs> That's all. Isn't that all social media is supposed to be about? It's what it's supposed to be. That's what we make ours. My, I'm at Marcus Parks. Ours is fun. Our social media is fucking fun. 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 <laughs> and sometimes donate if you can. Uh, we got t-shirts in men's and women's sizes at lastpodcastmerch.com. That's yep. No Dogs in Space t-shirts. They, we got the, the classic and then the rabid dog, which mm-hmm. I love so much. Yeah. If you look down at your, uh, at your podcast player right now and you see the No Dogs in Space logo and you dig it, Go to lastpodcastmerch.com. You can buy a t-shirt that has that logo, but the logo, it's specifically made for a t-shirt. It's done by an artist named Matt Wise. He goes by YYYYYS uh, on Instagram. Uh, And thank you, Matt, for making that for us. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. And if you are a person and you make sounds Mm -hmm. that might be music Mm -hmm. and you have it recorded in some sort of mp3 or Bandcamp or spotify or anything at all youtube link uh, and you would like us to play it at the end of our episode we would be honored to Mm -hmm. we we get a lot of these submissions so please (laughs) be patient (laughs) hopefully we will put your music up but please email them to us at no dogs in space at gmail.com that place in that place only will we be able to hear your music and be able to see if we can if we can play it at the end of every episode because that's what we'd like to do at the end of every main episode of No Dogs in Space we'd like to play a band or or a person who makes sounds mm-hmm. and and we and we'd love to showcase them because there's some great great stuff out there right now amazing stuff and the band that we're playing this week is Jabba out of Northern. Norway. That's Jabba, J-A-B-B-A. That's right. The song is Jabba Forever. It's off the album. Cool. You can find these guys on Spotify or on Bandcamp at jabbaband.bandcamp.com. And remember, everybody, the bands that we play here, a lot of them uh, make a lot of their cash on Bandcamp. Of course, you know, bands have a real hard time making money these days. So if you buy an album uh, from one of the bands that we play or if you buy an album from fucking anybody on Bandcamp, if you can afford it, 
toss a couple of extra bucks. Absolutely. Or, or go check out your 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 local uh, music show. Yeah. Go throw like five bucks a cover or whatever and, yeah. and, and go and go check it out. It, it, I know they would appreciate it. Absolutely. Uh, and if you want to check out the uh, the bands that we play, I mean, I mean, I'm talking about one, you know, royalties on one side and then saying go check out our Spotify playlist on the other. Also, we have a YouTube. We do. Check you, out our YouTube. Yeah. If you don't partake in Spotify. Yeah. If you're not a Spotify person, there's also a playlist on YouTube that shows. And if you actually, if you go to the one on YouTube, you can find every single song that we play uh, on the episode because a lot of the stuff that we play is not available on Spotify. But if you want to listen to it on Spotify, just type my name, Marcus Parks, into the search and you can find the playlist for this episode and every other episode of No Dogs in Space because we got a pretty damn good back catalog going now. All right. Take us out, Jabba. Thank you, Jabba. <laughs> and thank you for listening. Bye, buddy. Goodbye. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. 
by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.